Welcome to Storytelling with Seth, a place where I honestly and as authentically as possible attempt to share with you stories I discover. Some of them are in the news, some of them are a bit of word of mouth or something whispered in the ear, and others are those rare opportunities where I get the chance to sit down with someone and talk to them about their story and in turn share it with you. I really hope you enjoy every story here on Storytelling with Seth, but there's really only one way I can know, and that's if you let me know. If you're using the Anchor platform to listen to this, you can go ahead and leave me a voice message, and I'd be happy to share it on this podcast. However, you can also reach out to me through email at sethsingleton at gmail.com, as well as on various social media platforms like Instagram, where I'm Seth the Writer, Twitter, where I'm at one more singleton, or on Facebook, Seth Singleton Storyteller. Please feel free to reach out on the platform you feel the most comfortable with so that I can hear what you like, what you don't like, and more importantly, so that together we can share our stories with each other. And now that I've given you an idea of what this is and what to expect, the only thing now, or the only thing left to do now, is to tell a story. Let's get started, shall we? On this episode of Storytelling with Seth, we take a look at the continued discussion and the unending debate surrounding video games and their association or stated association with gun violence. We also get a chance to look over an article written by Dave Eggers, who suggests that we need to listen to children when they talk about climate change. I'm also intrigued by a video game called Ancestors and an article that describes the audacity of this game, the challenge it presents, and just how curious the author of the article is to see how the public responds when this game is finally released officially. I also really enjoyed this story from the LA Times, written by a Santa Monica librarian, making a case for comic books, and doing so in a way that goes beyond the traditional approaches to literature or the suggestion that it's only about the reading and development of language skills. According to this article, there's a great deal more going on by students who read comic books. It's actually something that can help them not only navigate the constant barrage of information coming at them from advertisements, real and fake news, and how to make their own discernments regarding that, but also how it can help them develop their tastes and be part of this process where they become more comfortable choosing material that they like, that is suitable to the taste they've developed, or that maybe is different outside or challenges the taste they've developed. And finally, when it comes to gaming, it's no longer a question of age. How granny and grandpa gamers are making impacts in the age groups of 60, 70, 80, and beyond, and how all of this makes me excited for the day when I can one day be a grandpa gamer. We're going to go ahead and get into all of these stories starting right now. Now this next one is a bit of a topple piece, and yet, strangely, it feels as though it's always been a topic for me. 
I grew up in an era when video games were just beginning to reach their heyday, or at least in my opinion they were. We'd gone from my brief introduction to the Atari system and games like Pong to the birth of Nintendo, when suddenly everyone I knew in school had a Nintendo game system, was using uh, Mario and Luigi and talking to each other about maps and tunnels and turtles and Goombas. and. Even then, I constantly heard arguments being made about the violence that existed in video games and how it was a contribution to the violence that was occurring around us. The article I'm referring to that brought this idea to my mind and why I wanted to talk about it was featured in Vox, and it's written by Aja Romano. And it's titled The Frustrating Enduring Debate over video games, violence, and guns. And I was intrigued by this because the focus of the article is on the recent shootings in El Paso, Texas, and Dayton, Ohio back in August. And the response that occurred after the shooter referenced briefly that they had enjoyed playing a game called Call of Duty, a wildly popular game in which players assume the roles of soldiers during historical and fictional wartime in his manifesto, and how this led to a statement from President Trump saying that we must stop the glorification of violence in our society. This includes gruesome and grisly video games that are now commonplace, continues to point to this being too easy for troubled youth to surround themselves in a culture that focuses on violence, and that ESPN recently chose to delay broadcasting an eSports tournament because of the shootings and the games that were being played in the tournament. And even recently, Walmart made a controversial decision to temporarily remove all video game displays from its stores, but this all occurred before it decided to change its policy regarding handguns and other high-powered weapons. And yet, despite this, there has also been a counter-argument that video games are not the problem and that they're an easy target that avoids what they consider to be the root of the problem, which is a need for stronger gun control. But instead of focusing on the topic of gun control, this article does its best to address the concern of what can influence culture, pointing to the concerns over rock and roll and the occult in influencing satanic style or violent group murders, mass murders, or even solo murder events. Scientists are generally at odds with each other over factual and casual links between video games and violence. It creates a lot of controversy that, as I mentioned, is something that I grew up with, but as this article points out, this discussion has been renewed by the fact that criticism uh, video games leading to real-world violence has intensified, and that in some ways it might be because of outside influences, like the fact that currently there seems to be a great deal of frustration over what little is occurring in response to the number of shootings that have begun and continue to increase throughout the country, and how in response to this, people are looking for ways for something to happen, something to be done. If it's not going to happen with gun control, well, then it must be happening with something else or it must happen somewhere else. However, even mass shooting survivors, like the gentleman referenced in this story, David Hogg, 
who became a gun control advocate after surviving the 2018 mass shooting in Parkland, Florida, and unveiled the new March for Our Lives gun control initiative in August, pointedly stated in his announcement, we know that video games are not to blame. Now, I'm also intrigued by the fact that this article does a great job of pointing out how the science linking video games to gun violence is murky at best, and how the debate over gun violence and other violence has been long raging. But the one regarding video game violence has had its probably oldest story linked to a 1976 game called Death Race, which awarded players points for driving over fleeing pedestrians dubbed Gremlins. The game at the time became mired in controversy and even sparked a segment on 60 Minutes. However, it also points out that at that time, no one was paying attention to the 1974 game Tank, in which your sole objective is to blow up your opponent. It also points out that there was a book written in 2017 called Moral Combat, Why the War on Violent Video Games is Wrong. And the psychologist Patrick Markey points out that Long before the issue was about violence, video games were considered fearful or fearsome because they were, as a quote says, licentious hangouts for teens. And by the 80s, arcades were being shut down across the nation by activist parents intent on protecting their children from the dangerous influences lurking within these <clears throat> neon-drenched dungeons. There's been plenty of violent games since I was a kid and as I became a teenager, in fact, this does a great job of referencing one of the most uh, violent games of my early teen years, the Mortal Kombat series, beginning in 1992, featuring fatality moves, gruesome destruction. It never led me to pick up a gun and do something violent with it. I played other games, one I remember called Narcs, in which you were a heavily armed police officer working narcotics and constantly just gunning down all kinds of bad guys all over the place. And it was violent and brutal and bloody. I played it with my sister and I can tell you that neither of us have picked up a gun in anger or in a sense of wanton destruction and gone out among the masses using our influence from that and other violent games as the reason behind why we were doing it. In fact, an interesting one reminds me of the recent story of serial killer Ted Bundy, who for many different reasons committed the crimes that he did, but right before his confession said that it was based on pornography, which was something that was under a lot of political scrutiny at the time. Whether or not there was an actual link is not something that is focused on when the statement made is used as the only reference point worth noting or worth paying any attention to. Much like that suggestion, the idea of video games being the sole root of cause behind violent actions, especially violence among those who play shooter games and then go out and shoot others. There is a difference between the investment when someone, for example, a neighbor of the 2018 Parkland shooter told the Miami Herald that the shooter would play video games for up to 12 to 15 hours a day and that this is something that is still wildly circulated. What I'm intrigued by is this response from a game developer named Naomi Clark, who says, I find it more plausible that America's longstanding culture of gun violence has affected video games than the other way around. 
which is interesting because the Call of Duty game was a game about being a soldier and going out and fighting in wartime scenarios. And yet in every instance, no one who has picked up a gun and performed a mass shooting claimed that they were in a wartime scenario or that they saw themselves as a soldier fighting in a war and fighting against other soldiers. I think it's interesting because during a conversation with the author, one person pointed out, actually his name is Tim Winter and he's the president of the Parents Television Council, compares the connection between a violent media and harmful real world effects that exists between cigarettes and lung cancer. If you consume in moderation, you'll probably be fine. But over time, exposure to violent media can have a cumulative negative effect. In fact, studies of infrequent smokers have shown that their risk of coronary disease is equal roughly to that of frequent smokers, and their risk of cancer is still significantly higher than that of non-smokers. But Winters continues to say that what I believe to be true is that the media we consume has a very powerful impact on shaping our belief structure, our cognitive development, our values, and our opinions. The article ends by pointing out that the debate endures because gun control isn't being addressed and that games are an easy target. This leads to a number of other examples that I really recommend. And then it wraps up with a final idea about how many members of the gaming community are already discussing gun violence and the importance that that brings to the discussion. I think it's a great article, I'll link to it, and I highly recommend giving it a full read-through, but it points to a long-standing discussion, one that feels more like a long-standing argument, and one that feels like its basis will be on a long-standing tradition, which is to, when needed, find fault with things that create disruption or opportunity for children to get out from under the influence of those who would like to make sure they remain in that influence, those things will always be singled out. Those things will often take the blame. And when the root cause is not being dealt with in a situation like gun violence, other secondary causes, other possibilities will be targeted instead. This is often a byproduct of not dealing with the root problem, but instead finding someone to blame for the problem. It'll be interesting to see if in 10 years this is a story I'm coming back to and we're still talking about. It'll be interesting to see if anything will have changed or how much, if possible, things might have worsened. And now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. Now this next article came from Dave Eggers and it was featured in The Guardian and it was one written by Dave Eggers who came to my attention after the publication of his work, a heartbreaking work of staggering genius, a personal memoir about his relationship with his brother after the passing of his parents and their life together in San Francisco, and his um, ability to pivot that into projects like A26 Valencia and numerous other great writing ventures. This article was titled, Why We Should Listen to Teenagers Speak About Climate Crisis. I was intrigued by it because it seems so often that Climate change is something that's discussed by those 
holding television anchor positions or political office. Very rarely is it suggested that teenagers have a viable voice or that they use it or that we listen to them. Anchors is part of a group known as the International Congress of Youth Voices. One year ago, the first conference was held in San Francisco. 26 countries gathered. They were mentored by the likes of Chimamanda, Ngozi Adichie, Khaled Hosseini, and Congressman John Lewis. According to Eggers, one of the more inspiring young delegates was a 15-year-old Salvador Gomez Colon from Puerto Rico, who created his own nonprofit to help the island's recovery after Hurricane Maria. According to Eggers, about eight months ago, the decision was made to hold the second Congress in San Juan. It would be a rich, expiring location for delegates, but it was also one of the most exciting places to be, according to Eggers, for grassroots democratic change. And it started with Governor Ricardo Rossello, who did not meet the reasonable expectations of his people. And the people took to the streets and marched until he left. According to Eggers, the delegates of the International Congress of Youth Voices are doing this every day. And one of the things that they're the most passionate about, he says, which is no surprise to him, probably through the understanding of their desires and their interactions with him, that they're most interested and passionate about climate change. He offers up a series of essays from students about their thoughts, their feelings, their opinions, and they include articles or essays, more correctly, essays like Why Fight for Climate Change by Joshua Brocchini, who is a 19-year-old delegate from Lagos, Nigeria. And he points to the fact that he lost a friend to a climate-induced flood in 2016, and it's actually led him to commit himself to a cause that's bigger than just one person himself. That's something he believes affects many others, that the life of his friend was not the only life lost. According to his essay, the climate change in Nigeria has led to the current Fulani herdsmen and farmer clashes, and that because of this, Nigeria still has not only not seen this as an important issue, but has not recognized the need to do more in response to help quell this. Another essay by Jamie Margolin, a Colombian-American writer and community organizer from Seattle, is titled A Bad Dystopian Movie. He says that we on planet Earth are living out a movie and that climate change and environmental destruction are quite literally ending the world. He then raises up this possibility, which has been raised before, that there's only 10 years left to actually save the world before there's nothing left really to save. He talks about how he is working now with 12 other young people and the help of a nonprofit called Our Children's Trust to sue the state of Washington. Because according to him, the whole state government is screwing over his generation. There's a few more essays, including Why Do I Fight for Climate Change by Matilde Bondo Dijdensborg from Denmark. I really like the idea of approaching this concept from the voices of 
children, of students, of soon-to-be adults. In some cases, the 19-year-old author is an adult. And that it's their future that is at stake. Many of us will not be here. Some of us, not for very long. And what we're doing about this situation, in their eyes, is simply not enough. Because we don't have enough of a stake in this fight. We don't have enough dog in this fight. Either way, his approach, suggesting one, that the values of this Congress are spreading, and two, that instead of focusing just on what he took away from this experience in his essay, to instead use the voices of the essays that were being written by the students who were part of this Congress, and including them, to demonstrate through their voices what climate change means to them. This is not an issue that will go away quietly, and of course there are many sides to it, but I'm intrigued by this position to, while pushing for a cause, also point to the voices, young voices, future voices, who have their own questions and concerns to raise and their reasons for doing so. I'm looking forward to hearing more news from the third annual Youth Congress and I'm also looking forward to sharing more of those essays with you next year and hopefully for years to come in the future. I am curious though about what your thoughts might be. Please listen to the end for all the ways that I try and offer for you to reach out and let me know your thoughts about this broadcast overall or specific stories like this one. And now we're gonna take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. Now this is a story that I really enjoyed. It made me smile simply because of the title which suggests already that this is an experience in which someone is frustrated and once they've reached a certain point with that frustration the only thing they can really do is describe it to others because they no longer focused on a goal of getting past the frustration to whatever the discovery might be. And they recognize that if the entire situation is just going to be frustrating, well then perhaps the best thing they should do is admit the frustration and share their experience. In an article titled, Ancestors is an Audacious Experiment, I Never Want to Play It Again, author Patrick Klepek writes for Vice.com, and he talks about playing a game called Ancestors, the Humankind Odyssey, and how after about an hour into the game, he set down his controller and screamed an obscenity while asking, what do you want me to do? There was no response from the screen or the game, and as he had for the past hour, Patrick looked at an ape who was staring at the sky, patiently waiting for his command. He then goes into a little bit of history about how Ancestors is the first game from designer Patrice Desilets, I hope I didn't butcher that name, since the revelatory Assassin's Creed II back in 2009. And much like the arc of evolution is attempting to capture, it's, as he described it, frustratingly indifferent. Now he wants to point out that he's experienced a few moments of frustration or mood and he's played and written about thousands of games during a 20-year career as a journalist. But he can't remember the last time he's been so interested to see a wider reaction to this work. 
The concept essentially is what if you were able to follow the evolutionary path of the human experience from apes to humans, minute by minute, day by day, and if you could guide a species down one evolutionary track or another, what would you prioritize? How would you make your decisions? But because he points to the fact that the game implies that fate is in your hand, that there's also not much, if any, direction or scope given for what you should be doing, how you should be doing it, why you should be doing it, or what it means. The questions include things like what food to eat, how to control strange situations or challenging situations. He points out that at one point he was surprised by a boar, and after having learned only one defense mode, which is to dodge, he mucked that up got injured by the boar, and then was able to eventually escape to a tree, but could see through a flashing red flare that his character was bleeding. And this is where he really faced a struggle because he didn't know what to do. And he'd seen that it could harm the ape and that he would lose his active character. And after trying to sleep and swim and numerous other ways that he could prevent this ape from dying and in its death simply have control of the game move to another ape and possibly go through the whole thing again he eventually found a tree that somehow provided a solution that he's not going into detail with the concept as he points out is rather amazing on paper that acts of desperation are at the heart of this game and that it's how you discover whether or not an ordinary stick can become a weapon or how a creature with very weak arms can later push a bunch of rocks that seem so much heavier than they would be capable of. And that on paper, this sounds so cool that he dove right in. But he admits that after trying to meet the game on the terms it established, he began searching everywhere, first through a kind of review guide that he felt offered more information than regular gamers would get, and thus was cheating and then eventually going to a lengthy video from Game Informer, in which even the associate editor tries to explain the game to colleagues and is more often than not only able to laugh and say, I don't know. And it's this moment when Patrick says that he realizes that this is going to be a much different game when Ancestors is released and thousands of people are struggling through, as he calls it, the punishing playroom. While he admits that it might not be for him, he can't deny that it has conviction, and that's something he can respect. And I'm intrigued by the idea of something that can be so frustrating and disappointing, and then at the end of it all, leave you with a feeling of recognition, understanding, and hopefully enough of it to walk away and simply accept some of the things we cannot control. So often it seems as though games are designed for us to achieve that accomplishment, that success. And at various levels, the games build in the ways for us to accomplish that success, even hints or tips. In this case, no such hints or tips are provided, and the experience is one that only time will tell whether or not Ancestors has created something that gamers have embraced and will continue to embrace, or if it was a great experiment that once it could not be widely shared and enjoyed, became an experiment that was more of a lesson and an opportunity. Time will tell how that story ends up playing out.
And now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. There's something impressive about an argument that can be made in three succinct points. This article from the Los Angeles Times is one that I think really provides an excellent example of this. The article is titled, The Case for Comic Books. And in this argument, the three reasons listed for encouraging the reading of comic books or supporting comic books as a literary medium are the following. One, that comics inspire and support recreational reading. Two, that comics enhance visual literacy. And three, that comics develop cultural and societal awareness. Very solid points in my opinion. And I like the idea that this article begins by suggesting that comic books have superhero qualities. And it continues this argument by saying, because they offer benefits to everyone across all ages and proficiency levels. But then it digs down deeper, just a little bit, with this idea of the fact that comics inspire and support recreational reading. Reading for pleasure gives children a necessary practice to self-select books. Understanding what it means to read for pleasure helps to inform that decision-making process. And I really like this idea of learning how to choose what we want to read because of how it makes us feel. Also, it states that over time, reading outweighs socioeconomic status in benefiting children's academic and professional success. Plus, Many parents can wonder about how to fit or find the time to fit a book into their child's busy schedule. Comics fit this perfectly because they prioritize reading independently at home or at school or on the go. The second main point, the idea that comics enhance visual literacy, points out something that I think I think about, probably aware of, but I'd never considered it in this context, which is that children, much like adults, are bombarded with images. There are advertisements, whether it's on television or other forms of screen time, and learning to navigate the visual world allows us to be more critical, creative, and also use analysis to interpret the sort of inference of the things we see. Comics help with this because their use of paneling and illustrated formats are a medium for, for practicing these visual literary skills, and that comics offer young readers time to reread and deepen their comprehension, while also offering precise and limited language to work with the illustrations to help improve that idea of the visual information they're taking in. I really like this concept because I know that we're bombarded by images. I know that the attention span has shortened from what it used to be, and it's because of the media we're exposed to. But this idea of using comics to help slow that process down and in the process allows children to study that information at their own pace, gain the understanding they need in order to interpret it, and then use that to better understand when the information is coming at them from a faster rate of speed or as the messages get quicker when they get older. Overall, 
I thought this was a really great second concept that initially through its headline seemed like a great concept to consider, but based on the context, this idea of the number of images that their children are exposed to through screen time and through just their everyday lives, this concept of how to begin interpreting that as early as possible is a really, really interesting one that I hadn't considered, and certainly not to this depth, even if I think that I might have. The final point, comics develop cultural and societal awareness. This is really a smart idea because it can be difficult to ask questions about things that even on appearance are hard to interpret or understand, whether it's religious or ceremonial dress, traditions, maybe even forms of interaction. And using comics as a way to help weave contemporary and historical information can introduce the reader to diverse characters, struggles with inequality, concepts, and situations of social justice, and that the plots can and usually do reference realistic settings, helping to build what they call the reader's schema. Now that's an interesting word, one I'd like to come back to at another time, but one that I would keep in mind because this concept of schema and how we build our knowledge base is a really important thing that is brought into this discussion in a really insightful way. Also, it points out that background knowledge, schema, is something that helps children better understand information across more than one discipline, which can help them be stronger in math and English instead of just math or English. And the final point that I thought this made a great job of suggesting is that comics promote knowledge and perspectives that reflect and go beyond children's experiences, which then provides the opportunity for self-empowerment and empathy. It's almost like it's a perfect list of the things that you want comics to do, and it's so concisely gathered here that I want to give a, uh, a bit of a shout-out to Stephanie Tovar who's the librarian at Santa Monica High School, and who wrote this article, and in doing so, made one of the best arguments I've ever heard of comic books, and also one of the shortest and one of the best structured short arguments to so perfectly encapsulate the three main points, break them down, and then close with really just a, a nice, clean, concept can go into further explanation, but at this point, really doesn't have to, which means I'm going to stop talking about it too, so that we can talk about it with other people after we've listened to this segment, or I'm going to stop talking about it, because now it's time to move on to the next thing. These days, it's all too easy to find a story that makes you angry, makes you scared, or makes you worry. The less likely option is to find a story that makes you smile. And yet this story about Granny Gamer from NBC News is one of those stories that couldn't help but bring a smile to my face. It starts out with an explanation that there's a current trend that's been recognized in gaming in which players in the age brackets of 60, 70, 80, and beyond have begun picking up video games in larger and growing percentages for various reasons. Now, many of them started as 
a practice to engage memory skills or other cognitive functions. But for others, the progression has taken on some very interesting turns and create a new sense of family and community. One of those examples is that of Sherry, who lives in Virginia and began playing the Elder Scrolls Skyrim back around maybe 2013. And when she did, she realized how much fun she was having and thought it might be enjoyable to share it with others. After a conversation with someone who encouraged her to do just that, Sherry went ahead and put herself on YouTube and began displaying recordings of her videos there. She now has approximately 718,000 followers. I can honestly say that's a lot more than me. Shirley really enjoys the engagement with all of her followers and refers to them as her grandchildren, which is a very sweet idea. Through her gameplay, recordings, and interactions with others, she's become part of a viable community that she enjoys engaging with and feel has not only expanded, but enhanced her life. She's also compared with a gentleman who's a little bit younger and a veteran, and he enjoys not only playing games, but recording them and streaming them on Twitch, which is a platform designed for gamers to share their content and gameplay experiences. Not too long ago, he developed a heart condition and learned he would have to have heart surgery. Before he did so, he made an announcement to his fans. In that announcement, he let them know that he would not be posting new video until after his procedure. When that announcement was made, he began to receive a huge outpouring of support. This support came in the way of gifts and other types of assistance. And because of it, he was able to stay connected to the community he created, and yet at the same time, also developed a network and community that went beyond video games and became more about family, community, and relationships. I'm really glad that the story doesn't just focus on the positive factors, because there are a few things that can be a concern and or danger. For example, while the overall experience for both players and the communities they've enjoyed have been positive, there have been, as it's stated, a few bad actors. And because of that, it's why the gentleman who is a veteran asked not to have most of his name details disclosed. Sherry was a little more open, even provided her last name. However, I'll leave that to the discretion of NBC News and leave her just as Sherry for the time being. You can learn her last name if you go to the NBC's news article and story. And that because of that, there has to be a small degree of separation, one that provides just enough protection from those who might not be acting in goodwill. For this reason, they've both noticed that there is a need to be thoughtful and conscientious when it comes to protecting their identity. And just like any other form of online activity, those protections are for their safety and things that they can rely on to allow them to safely interact with their community and to do so without the fear of reprisal or repercussion. That doesn't mean that there aren't a few negative comments or moments of harassment from those who are not supportive or supporting, let alone supporters, but just like so many people we might meet 
in the real physical world, overall, the number of good can often outweigh the bad. Beyond cognitive function, memory improvement, video gaming for those in the age brackets of 60, 70, 80, and older has become a way to expand familial or community connections when distance, age, and other limitations have up until this point potentially prevented those connections. An online community is really only limited by the desires and goals of the community. And when they desire to support seniors in gaming, looking to make a connection with others and to share their gaming experiences just the way younger gamers also like to, there's an opportunity for both groups to find a common ground, one that isn't determined by age, activity, or anything more important than enjoying a favored pastime and sharing it with those who feel the same way. I know that for me, gaming has not always been a large factor in my life, but I like the idea of getting older and the possibility that with it can come just as many, if not more connections to the world and community at large through a platform that I enjoy, enjoy sharing with others, and I can experience their shared joy as well. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to becoming a grandpa gamer. You've been listening to Storytelling with Seth. I'm your host, Seth Singleton. To contact me about any of these stories or a story you would like to see or hear on Storytelling with Seth, email me at sethsingleton at gmail.com. That's my full name with no spaces or punctuation. S-E-T-H-S-I-N-G-L-E-T-O-N at gmail.com. You can always reach out to me on other social media platforms, Instagram where I'm Seth the Writer, Twitter where I'm One More Singleton, or any other platform you choose. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this episode, rate and review so I can know your thoughts and what you think about the episode. And then tell a friend. Until next time, this has been Storytelling with Seth.